I can't begin to tell you what a pleasure it is for us to be back here. Uh, seems really like we just left a few days ago. I mean, you all look the same. I'm, I'm not sure I can say the same for myself, but Terry and I love Peachtree Church. Uh, as often as not, especially during pandemic, this has been our church home online all the way from Houston, Texas. So it's a great pleasure to be back here today. Uh, well, yes. Scripture reading this morning, I've been asked to uh, consider the life of Jeremiah and the life of the prophets in the midst of all that. So I have selected these words from uh, the lamentation of Jeremiah. I am one who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Against me alone he turns his hand again and again all day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away and broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me sit in darkness like the dead of old. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has put heavy chains on me. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my way from the hewn stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He led me off my way and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a mark for his arrow. He shot into my vitals, the arrows of his quiver. I become the laughingstock of all my people, the object of their tauntings all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, God is my glory and all that I had hoped for from the Lord. The thought of my affliction and my homelessness is wormwood and gall to me. My soul thinks continually on it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Please pray with me. Lord, it is not by might nor by power, but by your spirit that you offer your word to your people. So I pray that your spirit would activate all of these words and bring about your good purposes in our lives. For I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I salute uh, Peachtree Church for its desire to get to know the scriptures and preaching and exploring together the scriptures over this year in the Quest program, but I'm kind of sorry that I was the one who had to come here for Jeremiah. I mean, seriously, did you listen to this? Who in their right mind would ever want to be a prophet? I mean, the prophet Isaiah, if you're familiar with his story, he had to march around naked for three years preaching. Jeremiah, he was called when he was 20 years old. No one ever listened to him for 40 years of preaching. When he preached, he wandered around in sackcloth, and that is not a fashion statement, I'm telling you. He threw dust into the air and walked into it. The prophet Jonah, you're probably familiar, 
with Jonah. God sent him off to Nineveh, you know, that enemy city. He didn't want to go. It would have been like a deep, deep red Republican being told to go to a deep, deep blue Democratic convention and preach conversion. It's just not going to happen. I mean, the life of a prophet, grinding your teeth with gravel, not knowing what happiness is anymore. It's not something you would aspire to. It's not the sort of thing when you were a teenager and people were questioning you about your future plans. You would say, oh, I want to grow up and be a prophet. It's the last thing you'd want. Prophets were called by God. They didn't volunteer. And the prophet Jeremiah was called during a time when Babylon, great Babylonian nation, was pressing down on them from the north. Now, the work of a prophet is twofold. First of all, to say what's happening, and secondly, on the basis of that, to say what's going to happen. And because prophets never told people what they wanted to hear about what was happening, and they really didn't like what they said about what was going to happen, they were rejected. In fact, Jesus said about the prophets that they were rejected, they were stoned, they were killed. That was the word of Jeremiah. In fact, you know, I hear people today say, I wish we had a prophet. What would the prophet say to us today? We, how many times have I heard people ask, what's happening? Who can tell us so that we understand? I have a feeling, though, that if a prophet came and told us what was really going and what was coming next, it might not make us all that happy. That's what happened to Jeremiah. In fact, Jeremiah told the people that the Babylonians were going to completely conquer Judah and take over Jerusalem and lay it waste. But you know, the other interesting factor is just a little bit of silver lining that goes through the work of all the prophets. They also include at least one note of hope. You know, with Isaiah, to you, uh, a child is born, a son is given, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government, there will be no end. That's hope in the middle of darkness. Jeremiah, these words, you know, the long preface to it in the third chapter, but comes down to the end, you know, words of promise. It's Jeremiah who gave us that phrase, surely I know the plans I have for you, for your welfare and not to harm you, to give a future and hope. So we have these two things working together. The work of a prophet was to teach and to preach repentance, to get people to turn around. In this case, um, the nation of Judah and its kings and priests and people were so corrupted, that's why Jeremiah said, it's time to turn around. So I've been wondering, well, what would turning around look like for us today? I mean, what would a prophet's work be in our lives today? Came across a, a description of worship from uh, Archbishop William Temple. Uh, it's had a big impact on me. It's probably the most helpful thing I've ever read or heard on worship itself. Worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of the conscience by God's holiness. It is the nourishment of the mind by God's truth. It is the purifying of the imagination by God's beauty. It is the opening of the heart to God's love. It is the surrender of the will to God's purposes. So I thought we'd just walk through those for a moment. Uh, I'm talking about worship, but not, I mean, not, not exclusively about worship in a place like this for a moment like this uh, for one day during the week. I'm talking about a lifestyle, a worship-filled lifestyle. First of all, 
talking about how worship is the submission of all our nature to God. Now we know what human nature is. We talk about human nature. Our nature is what we think and what we do and what we feel. Hmm. A voice from beyond. This uh, nature is under constant pressure to move in this direction or that. We are under constant, the wind of constant uh, formation. That's why, you know, Paul wrote those words to the Romans. He said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to offer your lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your true spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's the change of nature. And my, what I'd like to say now is that wherever you're thinking or you're feeling or you're doing is transformed even just a little bit, it's a worship service. That's what worship is. It's the transformation of our nature. I, I was at the Masters golf tournament, I don't know, some number of years ago, and I positioned myself on the 10th fairway, if you've been there, you know the spot, uh, about, well, a little bit more than halfway up toward the green, and Tiger Woods was playing, hit his drive, middle of the fairways, right directly across from where I was standing, and when he made his second shot, he took a huge divot, you know, like about this size, like golfers do. That's why I'm not very good at golf, I just hate to, I hate to wound the grass in that way. Now, normally, it's, the, it's the, uh, the caddy's responsibility to replace the divot. But Tiger Woods walked, you know, like, seemed like 100 yards up there, farther than my drive would ever be. He picked up the divot, and instead of, you know, leaving it for the caddy to take care of, he turned around and he tossed it like a Frisbee back to the caddy. I mean, it was, it was uncalled for. It was nice. Just when he did that, from somewhere else on the golf course, somebody hit a great shot, and a huge cheer went up like they were cheering for Tiger Woods, tossing the divot back to his caddy. I mean, it was just so striking to me. And my whole, what I'd like to say this morning is, whenever you're thinking, whenever you're believing, whenever you're doing, whenever you're feeling is changed just a little bit, it's a little act of worship. And somewhere in the heavenly places, even though you may not be able to hear it, the angels are singing. Your beloved, Pastor Frank Harrington, uh, I remember him saying, when I would go back uh, to the presbytery when I was in seminary for the annual examination of candidates for ministry, the questions asked were the kinds of questions you would expect, theology, Bible, etc. But in the back row, there was always one old pastor who would raise his hand and ask, all this is fine, Frank, but tell me, have you made any progress in your daily walk with Jesus? And that's it. I mean, this quest that you are on right now, that's the quest to make a little progress in your daily walk with Jesus, a little bit of, at a time, step by step, what you think, what you feel, what you do. Sometimes it will happen here, but I'm willing to bet 90% of the time it's going to be out there because that's where your thinking and doing and feeling are confronted most by God. You know, uh, in 
area of Houston where we live, they are extending Interstate 69 north from Fostoria to Cleveland. So it's about a five-mile stretch of road. We know that road because we travel on it all the time, a couple times a week. So we've watched that construction project that, as it has unfolded. Now, there are a couple of problems that they have to confront. First of all, they've got to get across the East Fork of the San Jacinto River. And secondly, they've got to figure out what to do with a cemetery that's right in between the north and the southbound lanes of traffic. It's been there a hundred years, maybe no more. I don't know. What are they going to do about that cemetery? You know, if it was up to me, I probably would have started at Fostoria and just gone sequentially on up to Cleveland. But that's not the way they did it. But they seemed to start everywhere. They were over here and they were over there. And you couldn't figure out how all these pieces were going to fit together. But gradually over time, you can see it. And as I have driven back and forth, I thought, you know, that's strangely reminiscent of my daily walk with Jesus. I mean, there are parts of this improvement project that are already done, and we're traveling on it right now. There, there are some places where I, maybe I'm overly optimistic here, but it sort of feels like Jesus and I are kind of in sync. But there are other places where I haven't let him go yet at all. I mean, there are some dead ends. There are a couple of overpasses that they built. There's no ramp up to or down from and no road underneath. I have no idea what they're there for. They look like Roman ruins. There are some places that are like that in my life. There's, there are some dead places in my life where I really don't want Jesus to go at all. I mean, there are some roadblocks and some detours, but every day on that project, they make a little progress. And I'm hoping and praying that's the same with me. And wherever you make a little progress, the heavens cheer and you're in a worship service. All right. So it is the quickening of the conscience by God's holiness. You know about conscience, it's something that's built into all of us. I mean, every person has a conscience. It's not necessarily true that every person has an awareness of God or a belief in God, but we all have a conscience built into us. It's a gift from God so that all of us will at least have a sort of general framework for decency in the world. So the conscience consists of things that God has written on our hearts about behavior that holds society together. But the conscience is not the same as God. So, uh, one of my preferred ways of getting around, or at least uh, exercising, is riding a bicycle. And when I ride my bicycle, there are three things I want to know. I want to know how far I've gone, I want to know how fast I've gone, and I want to know how many calories I've burned. That's the whole point. And in order to keep track of that, I've got a device on my arm that somehow communicates with satellites in the heavens and gives me all this information when I'm done. But I also have a, a secondary point of reference, and that's a small computer that goes on the handlebars of my bike, and it reads with a, a, to a sensor uh, from the turning of the wheels. So I get information from above, and I get information from below. The problem is they never agree. Uh, probably 20,000 miles of riding, I can't think of a, a time that they've ever been in agreement with each other. So which one do I believe? Well, which one would you believe? Of course, it's the one that tells me I've gone the farthest, gone the fastest, and burned the most calories. And that's always the one that comes from below. 
It's not the one that comes from above. Somehow I've got to get my life from below into some sort of conformity with my life up above. So we need to bring our conscience, this, this inbuilt general set, but it comes from words meaning to know guilt. It, it, we need to bring our capacity to know guilt under the authority of God. So there are two problems with the conscience. On the one hand, the conscience sometimes can be underactive. Like I, I saw an uh, interview with uh, a hitman from, from the mafia. And uh, in the interview, they said, you know, when you were getting started in this work and you were in your late teens, did it ever bother your conscience? He said, well, it would have bothered my conscience if I'd had one. But some people just don't have much of a conscience. You know, you can actually see a distorted conscience in the Bible. Uh, just before Jesus went to his execution, this is what he told his disciples. He said, I'm telling you, the hour is coming when those who kill you will think that by doing so, they are offering worship to God. Well, think about that. These are people whose conscience will tell them that they are worshiping God by killing the disciples of God's own agent, Jesus. That's how distorted the conscience can be. I mean, in the Old Testament, there's another passage that said, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what seemed right in their own eyes. So we need to bring our, our conscience under the holiness of God. How many times have I heard people say, about some terrible thing that happened. I know that the Lord has forgiven me, I just can't forgive myself. Seriously, you've got a higher standard than God? You see that conscience can get us, that conscience can be a bully as well as a blessing. You know, nothing really strikes terror into our life, our family, uh, more than uh, uh, computer trouble. And, I mean, we're not novices, it's not like we don't know anything, but we can get ourselves out of simple scrapes, but yeah, it's just sometimes, you know, stuff happens. So Terry has done some research and she has found this company, Experimax, it's just down the road from our house, uh, a man there named Tristan, he's a, a, a franchise system of people who, who you can enter into a contractual relationship to uh, do repair work on your computers and help you when you get sort of confused. So now, Tristan is on retainer <laughs> for Terry and me. And whenever we got a problem, we just get in touch with Tristan and he fixes things. And the best part is once a month as part of this contractual arrangement, we give him permission to go into our computers. I mean, he's got basically all our passwords. He can go wherever he wants to go. He can look for malware or for too many things that are open or other complications that he can see. It's interesting when he's done. I can say about our computers, they are quickened. You know, they just work better and faster. The quickening of the conscience, that's a worship service. Wherever you begin to take your inward sense of right and wrong and put it under the framework of God's holiness, a little worship service has taken place. All right, it is the nourishment of the mind by God's truth. Well, we know what, we know what the uh, mind is, we know what the brain is. You know, the 
The brain is the physical thing, and the mind, well, I guess the mind is the information that goes in the brain. And we know how to feed the brain, such as brain food, we've heard about it. What is it, green leafy vegetables and fatty fish, walnuts, berries, you're feeding your brain. What about the mind? How do you feed your mind? Well, Archbishop William Temple says we feed the mind with God's truth. And God's truth, of course, would be the scriptures, the Bible. Another reason for your quest this year. I can't remember exactly when it was, but maybe 10 years or so into my ministry, I thought, I need to start getting more of this Bible up here in my head. So I started memorizing scripture passages and uh, continued that ever since. I don't know when it was, maybe 15 years ago, I started having some, some, I was going to say mental problems, that's not exactly right. Uh, I started having trouble with my inner perceiving faculties. They discovered that I had a broken temporal bone. It's the bone that your brain rests on. And it created all sorts of problems for me. So I had two surgeries to fix it. After the second surgery, I woke up I can't describe you the nightmare that I opened my eyes into when I was laying there in ICU. I felt like my, I felt like I was on a carousel. It was wheeling around and around and around and on the other side of the carousel were mirrors that were circling in the other way. It was the most intense experience of vertigo that a human being could have. I thought to myself as I laid there in intensive care, I can't do this. I remember laying there in bed middle of the night, saying, Lord, if, I, if this doesn't get better, I, I, I'm going to kill myself. That's exactly what I said. I, I, I can't. By the way, I'll just stop for a moment and say, some of you may be in that place right now, or you may know someone who's in that place right now, but I'm standing here before you to say, hang on. That's the way I felt back then. That's not the person I am right now. Things got better. But anyway, in that moment, everything was whirling and swirling around, and all of a sudden into my mind came the Scripture passage from Jeremiah. The thought of my homelessness and affliction is bitterness and gall to me. I mean, that was a description of my circumstance. My soul thinks on it continually, is bowed down within me, but this I call to mind. I mean, this is me and I see you in a spinning world. This is what called to mind. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And right after that, another passage from Genesis about Jacob. Jacob, everything that could go wrong in Jacob's life had gone wrong. And he lay down in a wilderness place to sleep when God appeared to him in a dream. And God said to Jacob, know that I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. And I will be with you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. And Jacob opened up his eyes and he said, surely the presence of the Lord was in this place and I didn't even know it. This is the house of God, the gate of heaven. 
And as I was laying there in ICU with the world spinning around, that didn't do anything to cure my vertigo, but it did something to me in here. You know, the scriptures say, the Bible says that the scriptures are inspired by God, meaning they are breathed by God. When I was laying there, it was like God breathed on me. Complete transformation of the moment. You know, the scriptures we are told, they make us proficient and equipped for every good work, like Sully Sullenberger, remember him? Took off from, you know, LaGuardia on his way to Charlotte, ran into the flock of birds. He said it was the most sickening moment of his life when he realized he had 150 people on his airplane and no engines. But he thought, I've been doing this for 40 years. They've been getting ready, me ready for this moment. And he landed the plane on the Hudson River, a miracle. He was proficient. I would like to be proficient and equipped for life. And whatever you do, whenever you take the scriptures more seriously, whenever you get, whenever you offload some of this into your head, it's a little worship service. And the angels sang in heaven. It is the purifying of the imagination by God's beauty. I think a lot about beauty, what a powerful agent beauty is. You know, uh, Einstein said that imagination is more important than intelligence. Everything that happens generally starts in our imagination. The problem with imagination is it can take us some dark places or it can take us to some beautiful places. All the bad things that have been going on recently started in somebody's imagination. And so did all the good things. That's why the Bible says, cast down imagination and every vain thing that exalts itself above the knowledge of Christ. Bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. So I think a lot about beauty. I just uh, recently finished reading Ron White's book, The Eloquent President. It's all, all the speeches that Abraham Lincoln gave from the time he was elected president until his assassination. It's really a beautiful book. Anyway, I mentioned to Terry that I was reading it. She said, well, remember that story you told? We, we decided we'd watch the movie of Lincoln, you know, Steven Spielberg's version of the Emancipation Proclamation. Great movie, best picture of the year. She said, you remember that story you told about Lincoln? I said, yeah. She said, that's a really good story. You should tell that story again. That was a first, I want you to know. <laughs> 50 years of preaching, I've never heard her say those words. It's always, you know, you've told that story before. <laughs> so if you've heard this before, it comes from her. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, who played the part of Abraham Lincoln, spent a lot of time getting ready to, pl to play the part. He was interviewed afterwards. How did you get ready? He said, well, I read everything that I could on Lincoln. I talked to all the experts on Lincoln. I did my very best to become Abraham Lincoln. I started to talk like Lincoln. Lincoln's voice was just a little bit higher. He raised his voice. And he dressed like, he walked like Lincoln. He bent over like this. The, the, the further into the war things got, the more hunched he was. He was for the, not just when they were on the set, but 24 hours a day, seven days a week during the whole time of production. To the best of his ability, Daniel Day-Lewis became Abraham Lincoln. So the interviewer asked him afterwards, so what was it like when you were finished? And he said, I've never loved a man like I loved that man. 
and I miss him. I miss him. You know, Abraham Lincoln was never noted for being attractive. You know, there's the old saying that Lincoln was once accused of being two-faced. He said, if I had another face, do you think I'd use this one? (laughs) But you know, the, the longer you read, the more you know, the handsomer he becomes. I don't know how long ago, it was maybe 20 years ago, somebody came to me and said, we finally figured it out, we've been talking about it. Who do you look like? We've decided you look like Abraham Lincoln. I'm thinking, seriously? But now that I've gotten to know Lincoln, I'll take that any day. The highest compliment. Because you see, the beauty that we're talking about is different from the external beauty. They said the same thing about Jesus. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with griefs, one from whom we all turned our faces. And yet we sing, beautiful Savior, Lord of the nations, Son of God, Son of man, glory, honor, adoration, now and forevermore be thine. Well, it is the opening of the heart to God's love. Jesus put it this way, pretty straightforward. He said, hey, listen, this is the way people are going to know whether or not you're my, my uh, disciples if you love one another. Pretty simple. I've had a hard time knowing what to do with panhandlers. You know, people are waiting on all the street corners. I just try not to make eye contact. Terry's great. She puts stuff in the back of the car and she gives out care packages to people and I... I had it all rationalized pretty well, but still haunts me every time I see him. In fact, one guy sits at our little intersection, and he has a little sign that says, Hi, I'm Joe. Well, one day I finally decided, oh, I'm going to do something about this. Some friends had been weaving together plastic grocery bags into mats. So I took one of those mats, and I put some money in it, and I took it over here, Joe. I turned, and as I was walking away, uh, he said, Excuse me, sir. And I turned around, and he said, would you like to stay and have lunch with me? And I looked down, someone had brought him a little cook stove and given him some steaks and he was cooking them right there by the freeway. And he invited me to lunch. And I was so humbled. You know, there's an old Jewish proverb that said before, every person goes an angel declaring, behold, the image of God. So I've decided, but this is what I need to do. I need to get a big piece of cardboard, put it on a stick, and walk out there and stand right next to Joe with his hi, I'm Joe sign. And write on that cardboard, behold the image of God with an arrow pointing down at him. You know, if you could just see every person in that way, the image of God, the image of God, It's a little worship service. Well, and finally, uh, the surrender of the will to God's purposes. I guess back to technology for a second. we got the iPhones when they first came out and we had them for a few years and we decided to upgrade and the upgrade was a nightmare if you ever did that. You couldn't get the 
information to transfer from one to the other took us days. So we said, this is going to be our last iPhone. But you know, they only last so long. We got to the middle of the pandemic. Batteries wouldn't hold the charge anymore, had to make a change. Well, because everything was closed, we had to do it online. So we ordered them, they delivered, put them on the dining room table, we stood back. <laughs> I don't know. And I don't know, one of the other of us said, well, should we start now? It's the middle of the afternoon. I said, no, no, I think we need a good night's sleep and a hearty breakfast. <laughs> then we'll take it on. So next morning, I didn't sleep very well. Actually, I knew what was coming. Got up the next morning, took it out of the packaging, Here's the new phone. Look for the instructions. Step number one, put the old phone next to the new phone. Okay, one, that's not too hard. I can do that. Where was number two? I mean, there was no, they forgot to put number two in my box or number three, four, five, and six. I said to Terry, what's number two? They didn't put it in the box. She said, I don't know. I only have a number one, two. And it finally dawned on us that was the only step. You just put the one down next to the other, and something happens. When you surrender the old to the new, something happens. When you surrender some new bit or piece of your life to God, it's a worship service. I have a friend, uh, Paula D'Arcy, she says, God comes disguised as your life. If you can begin to see your life as God in disguise, then every moment of every day becomes a worship service. And it pleases the prophets of old. Please pray with me. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and know the love of God that surpasses knowing and so be filled with all the fullness of God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.